Welcome back to Overdue Rentals. This week, we're talking about Mistress, the 1992 comedy starring, now this is, this is a big cast, Robert Wool, Martin Landau, Eli Wallach, Danny Aiello, Robert De Niro, Tuesday Night, Gene Smart, Sherilyn Ralph, Laurie Metcalf, Christopher Walken, and a very brief appearance by one Ernest Borgnine. And we're going to be joined by uh, star Robert Wool to talk about this today. And don't forget Jace Alexander. And Jace Alexander. I did forget Jace Alexander. Michael, why don't you give everybody a rundown on what the film's about in case they haven't seen it? All right. So uh, good tee up for uh, Mr. Wall as our guest because he plays the character of Martin Landisman, who is a down and out Hollywood screenwriter and director. Uh, currently, he works on like he works on like those old VHS tapes where they're like it's basically a, a, instructional like a, videos. Yeah, instructional videos. Like, well, I don't want to crib too much on the Wikipedia, but we'll just cite the Wikipedia. So yeah, he's making instructional videos. And then out of nowhere, this producer named Jack Roth, played by Martin Landau, rediscovers his script, The Darkness and the Light. And this is a script that's existed for years. It never got made for one reason or another, but Jack's hot on getting it all, uh, you know, into the air. And, you know, they're, fi- they're, they're going through the usual Hollywood rigmarole. They're finding money men. Uh, played by Robert De Niro, Danny Aiello, and Eli Wallach. The only problem is everyone wants their mistress in the film some way or another. Now, that's that's basically all you need to know. That's all you need to know right there, plain and simple. It is a a dark comedy. Yeah, that is all you need to know. We may just be aware. There may be some slight, there's nothing really I would consider a spoiler, but we do talk about specifics in the film. So if you haven't watched it yet, go watch it. It's on HBO Max right now. And then just come back and listen to the rest of the episode or just listen to the whole episode and then go back and watch it. But uh, it was fantastic uh, to be able to have Robert Wool here to speak with us. So let's let's get into it. Let's get Robert in the room and talk about Mistress. How are you? We're fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's also great to be here to talk about Mistress, which is like a, I was, I was like 12 years old when I saw this movie, but I such a big fan. I think it deserves a lot more attention than it got even back then. What happened with Mistress? Um, well, one of the things that happened, I won't say it was all dependent on this. Uh, one of the things that happened was that it came out just about a month after, or a month, maybe six, after the player. And, and the player became the she-she um, it's Hollywood, you know, they were laughing. Oh, this is so Hollywood. And it's so great that these people make fun of themselves. And, you know, and yeah. it was, that, that was, the, that was the strength of that movie was the different um, cameos and everything. Because the plot sucked. The plot <laughs> of the players sucked. <laughs> I mean, out, Robert. I mean, the plot of the player about the studio head that's going to kill somebody because, uh, and, and get his girlfriend. That's an episode of Columbo. I think Columbo did that episode. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was ridiculous. Uh, I mean, as much as I love Whoopi Goldberg and Lyle Lovett, did you believe for one second they were police detectives? Oh, no, no. No. The, the, the strength of the player was the amazing opening shot, which is truly amazing. And it was Altman, who I adored, but, you know, he was, uh, 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 he was a great guy uh, personally. But... Uh, but it was the cameos and, and it was the, the, the she-she stuff. The, the, you know, having the actual people in Hollywood making fun of Hollywood. But the movie, it's the story was like, please. <laughs> I mean, that was, and, it, and it got all these awards and everything. And then we came along and for better or for worse, I mean, you know, maybe this plot isn't very good either, but what became interesting to me over the years is that 
among film students, mm. film students, they love this film because they all said to me, we're going to come up against this a lot more than we're ever going to come up against studio stuff. You know, if mm. you're going to make an independent film, this is what you have to go through. And um, I mean, and, and, and that does happen. The judgment on the film itself, the merits and the, you know, the pluses and minuses, that's for people individually to discuss. But the player situation did, you know, and that wasn't the player's fault. It was just a fact of timing. How very specifically would you say Mistress is exactly how, you know, those situations go? Is it true to life? Oh, I'm sure it happens. I, in fact, it happened when my friend, uh, when Barry Primus was trying to put together the movie at one point. Um, uh, I mean, I can't say a blanket statement that that's <laughs> the way it happens, but I, I, I put together an independent film and there are, you know, people want favors and they want certain things. You know, I want my son to be in the movie business. I want my girlfriend to do this. But, you know, having, you know, that, that's not a totally, I mean, Bullets Over Broadway, Woody's movie, had the same plot. I mean, it's not, you know, having the gangster's girlfriend be, you know, in the movie. Uh, that's never been, that's the same in showbiz. That's been done in theater. And yeah. so it's not, a, it's not a, an original in that sense. What was interesting is that all three of the investors wanted all three of their girlfriends in the movie. And uh, they couldn't do that. There is a lot more the deeper to go into the idea of quote unquote mistress. I mean, not to like jump all the way to the end of the film at this point, but you know, there is that, you know, double feeling of, you know, the cruel mistress really is wanting to get your piece of art made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, no, it works on, on a bunch of different levels. Uh, I mean, this is all, that movie's all Barry Primus. I mean, yeah. you, know, you know, people forget that is Tribeca Films' first movie. That was, oh. their, first, that was their very first entry into the film business. Uh, Barry had worked with Robert De Niro for they, they knew each other forever. They're lifelong friends. Barry is one of the great, I mean, as far as acting teachers and acting coaches, you're not going to get any better. I mean, by far, I think it's the best performance I ever gave. Um, I, you know, I, I, without a doubt, I think, um, it's my personal favorite performance, uh, but it's by, by far the best thing I ever did as far as an actor. Uh, the... I, I can't, and, and it's Barry's story, so I can't go into that anymore because it's not my story. I didn't, it wasn't my, sure. people think I wrote directly. I did, I didn't, no. <laughs> great, the great thing was, go, the great thing was going to work every day with Martin Landau. Oh, yeah. And, and Danny Aiello, or De Niro, or Gene Smart, or Eli Wallach, or Cheryl Lee Ralph, or Chris Walken, or Laurie Metcalf. I mean, it was, the the entree that having De Niro at that time's imprint on the movie was really special. Mm. Yeah, there always it always seems to be that case where like the one cog falls into the wheel and then everyone kind of falls in behind. Well, it depends who it is. Yeah. I mean, at that point, remember, remember in the early '90s, uh, Bobby hasn't yet gone into the phase where he was working a lot. You know, a De Niro movie was something you really looked forward to seeing. At, at that point, uh, you know, so, I mean, he was coming up. This is right after, I mean, I don't know how long it is after Raging Bull this is. I mean, it's early 90s. So when is, no, Raging Bull's early 80s. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, but still, I mean, at that point, um, it meant a lot. It meant a lot. 
Now, how did you get approached to, to become a part of Mistress? Like, tell us the, the origin story of how it all came together for you. Um, I had an audition. And uh, this is coming after Batman. So it was coming after Good Morning Vietnam and Bull Durham and Batman and Tales from the Crypt and an HBO special. And so I got an audition with Barry Primus and it went okay. And then the second one, the second one didn't go so okay. The second <laughs> one, Barry said something to me about the directors I had been working with and I exploded saying, what the fuck? I go, the people I'm working with, you're talking about Tim Burton and Ron Shelton and Barry Levinson. I go, look, you want to come after me? Fine, but don't tell me that. And I think he appreciated that because after that, he backed off and then he, he told me he wanted me in the movie. And uh, you know, at that point, now De Niro had to give the okay on it. It had to go through De Niro. And uh, at that point, Marty Landau was committed. Mm. And I don't know who else was. Uh, maybe da uh, probably Danny and Eli, because they were calling in all the chits. And, and the person is really underappreciated. And, and, and to be fair, some of his great speeches, because there was a lot of speeches, got cut, is Danny Aiello. Danny Aiello, it was so good in that movie. When I, and, he, and he had this great speech at the dinner table, and it got cut. It really got cut way down. And that yeah. was kind of unfortunate, because he was really terrific. I mean, everybody. I mean, you know, actually, it was the first time I had seen De Niro mug that much and, and I, actually the only other time was in brazil but, oh yes <laughs> but and it was fun to watch him do it and of course and the great thing about it was uh i got both de niro and martin landau to sign my application card for the academy <laughs> <laughs> and i think that's a big reason why i got in but it was, it was, I mean, the work was just Marty Landau learning so much from him and hearing the stories because it was all actor studio people, big time actor studio. Eli, you know, went back with Strasburg and all these guys. Danny wasn't, but, and then you had Gene Smart and Cheryl Lee Ralph and then Laurie and Tuesday Night. I mean, and, and Jace. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Chris, the first day of the movies, Chris Walken. I, it was, and then you also have a scene of, of everybody chasing Ernest Borgnine for a few minutes. That was fun. That was fun. He was very nice. He was very nice. Bernie was, Borgnine was, I only met him one day, but he was very nice. I mean, it was a real, it's, a, you know, looking back on it, it's uh, when people want to talk about that, uh, it brings a smile on my face because not, the true film lovers, like I said, they want to talk about Mistress. And I get a big, you know, who's a big Mistress fan is Alexander Payne. And, oh. Jason, and Jason Reitman. Oh. Yeah, those two are very big Mistress fans. That kind of plays looking into their filmography. Especially yeah, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it really does. And uh, sort of circling back to the story of this film, the story of this film do indeed does not suck because I remember, I, I didn't see it as a kid, but I'd known of Mistress as a kid. The trailers show you something that's, it, it looks fluffier in the trailers, I'll admit it. It kind of looks like, oh, who's sleeping with who? It's gonna be kind of a romp. But then actually sitting down and watching this movie, I was taken aback in the best way possible by the slow inching towards the, the Chris Walken story where it's like, oh wait, this all comes from a really personal place for him and this is really what he's fighting for. 
Yeah, it's a pretty dark movie. Interesting, you know, one of the producers came up to me years later when he talked about it, and his thought was that the movie would have been much more successful had they cut out the, the entire Laurie Metcalf scenes with me. Hmm. And as much as I love Laurie, and Laurie's about, you know, she's as, as great an actress as America has, I'm not so sure he's wrong. Because it would have played more, a little bit lighter. It would have been shorter. And it would have gotten to the, because those scenes, I'm not, I don't think I'm at my best in those scenes. I don't think I'm very good in those scenes. Those are the weakest scenes I have. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure he's wrong. I'm not sure he's wrong about that. Uh, had you tighten that movie up by the seven, eight minutes, that might have made a big difference. Although I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that. We were over, you know, we did get some nice reviews from some people, but it was really overlooked and passed over. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. And, but I, it makes me wonder now in the filming process, how much were you aware of, or I mean, obviously you were aware if there were changes made to your character per se, but where did it come in where there were compromises made for even the film you were in? I don't know that. Yeah. By that time, I don't know. We were shooting the script. Okay. So it could, it could, who, who knows? We'll have, to, we'll, have to, we'll have to hunt J.F. Lawton down and see what he has to say about it, I guess. <laughs> well, you have to hunt down Barry. And Barry, yeah, Barry too, of course, yeah. I never met J.F. Um, I don't, I think he did earlier an earlier draft of it. I, I never met J.F. Uh, it's all Barry. That movie's all Barry. Because mm. yeah. I, I find, I mean, I know how much of Barry it is, but I still find it interesting because I wonder when I think back to, you know, the stories of J.F. Lawton, since he wrote Pretty Woman and he made all those compromises, because originally that script is a lot darker than what was made into Hollywood's version. So I kind of wondered how much was bled into that. Yeah. Yeah, but I, did J.F. make those? Was he still aboard when they made all those changes? It's a good question. That's the thing. I'm, I have to, yeah, I'm not sure. Mike, is he the only credited screenwriter on that? Uh, maybe he is. But that doesn't mean there wasn't 15 other screenwriters. I was working as a screenwriter back then and in, in Paramount and Disney. So I know how many scripts went past people's hands. And again, it's a different movie, 3000. That's what it was originally called, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it wouldn't have been Pretty Woman. I mean, it, would, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have been Pretty Woman. I mean, it just, it's a different movie. Not a Disney movie either. <laughs> Yeah, those are those were those uh, salad days where you could actually have not one but two Disney brands that catered to adults, and it's like, is this a Touchstone or a Hollywood movie? And I I really kind of miss that because that it really helped Disney sort of branch out back in those days where they really kind of needed to because it was yeah. like the dark yeah. ages of Disney itself. Yes, no, I, without a doubt, that's the, I was I was a screenwriter, a staff screenwriter at Paramount. Let's see, right after Police Squad. So that's in the early, mid 80s. So, uh, and I was a writer over there. <clears throat> and this is still when, you know, Diller, Eisner, Katzenberg, they're all still there. And then during that period is when Diller goes to Fox, Eisner and Katzenberg go over to Disney. And um, there was a great wing of writers up there. Myself, a guy named Eric Luke, good writer, K uh, uh, Cashman and Epps. Uh, who, uh, Top Gun. yeah, they were writing that. Well, Epps, one of them lived in Minnesota. The other one lived in, uh, in, in California. Uh, <laughs> and, 
I remember when they were writing Top Gun, right below me was Simpson and Bruckheimer's offices and I could hear the screams. Uh, and then Bill Lancaster was there. Uh, Parks and Lasker and Parks were on that floor. Uh, they had just written um, the, uh, the Matthew Broderick movie, the uh, Spy Game, War Games. So it was a great bunch of people. And then it came apart because everybody left. Yeah, the regime changes are always brutal when it comes to stuff like that. And that's just, the, those are those wonderful little pivot points where you remember the names and it's like, oh, well, I, Eisner's going to Disney. Well, okay, good luck with that, buddy. <laughs> no, it was very successful. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I was wondering just to go back into talking about Mistress, though, because where were there, you, you, you talked about how you thought your scenes against Laurie Metcalf were probably your worst scenes, but what about those? Because we're sitting there watching, you know, these mistresses, you know, audition for you and I'm watching as they're pouring their hearts out. It's so brilliant. And they don't understand that that's what they should be delivering instead of like their kind of quirky, what they think Hollywood should be, should be out there doing sitting across them watching that. Are you getting the same feelings from them? Like, Oh my God, you're really kind of giving me that power. Well, yes. Uh, especially, uh, boy, when you, you know, when you got Cheryl Lee Ralph and, uh, and Tuesday, well, Tuesdays was a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, she sings the song, right? She sings the song. And uh, they only cut to me once, and I thought for sure you could have got two or three more laughs cutting back to me. I, don't know why. I mean, they didn't, I don't know why they could have got at least another big laugh. I mean, um, but now, now Jean's story was a lot darker uh, yeah. because she was an alcoholic uh, stewardess, flight attendant. And, and Cheryl Lee's was also darker. And they were, but they were great stories. Um, and then she goes into the bad acting thing. Um, I mean, those you know, those are really good actresses. These are really good actors. I, you know, I don't know if I've ever, I mean, a complete cast ensemble like that. I don't think I've ever been anything like. I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate, but I, nothing like that with, with these people. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of awards between Martin Landau and De Niro and Eli Wallach and Gene Smart and Leslie and Laurie Metcalf and. Aiello and uh, and Walken. I mean, there are a lot of awards there. Yeah. A lot of awards. Um, you know, they were. It was. It was very, very special. I like. I. You know, it's a very dark movie, and also people forget it's uh, also Maury from uh, Goodfellas is playing the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's playing the video guy. Yeah. Got oh, the video studio, right. Maury. You know, so who's passed? I think he passed recently, a couple of years ago. Um, no, it did. You know, I was I was invited into a group that was very, you know, very you know, had took acting to a different level. I learned a lot. I, I stay with me a lot more. So, I mean, you take something from every movie. Mistress though is a little bit more. Mistress stays with me on a lot of levels. I mean, it's it's uh, and Jace Alexander too, who became a very you know uh, successful uh, TV director. Yeah, he he kind of blew me away too with like this role that could have very easily been just oh he's this little shit that's just hanging on because of his dad's name. But then uh, the additional layer to that is okay, he has interesting story ideas that carry through, but he does kind of circle back to well he is still a little shit. Well, yeah, that's that's what it was, and of course he is the uh, son of Jane Alexander, so he's pretty good, good uh, pretty good uh, you know you know was a family tree, so very. I mean, a lot of terrific people in that movie. You've been teasing us with all this, the the great Martin Landau stories. And that just reminded me of the fact that towards the end, you get that wonderful 
like sort of kind of chilling moment with him where the deal's on the rocks and then you just grab him as like listen you're not gonna fuck this up for me uh can you tell us more about like, was that a nerve wracking experience for you? And did he kind of give you any pointers or did you have a conversation before you did that? No, no, he didn't have to he didn't give pointers. Uh, I wish I wish he would have. The Martin Leno gives you a note that's pretty good. Um, he was so, uh, he does a thing that I will never forget. The scene where he talks about his background, the scene where we're in the, is it the coffee shop or we're in a restaurant somewhere? And he talks about how he fucked up in Hollywood. Why? When I said, whatever happened to you, Jack? I think his name was Jack. Yeah. And he tells the story and he does one piece of, he does a take where, and he talks about how he had to fuck the other guy. And that happens all the time in Hollywood. You know, the only thing, it's not good enough that you, you know, that you succeed, your enemies have to fail. And he said, I should have given it to him, but the old street thing in me is I had to fuck him. And I haven't worked a damn, done a damn thing since. And Jay says, well, you did that uh, one, whatever piece of fluff. And he looks at him and he goes, and, and that's it. It was just like, you know, and it, that was all he did. It was like, what, what are you talking about? And I thought, wow, what a, what a choice. What a choice to make there. And, and Marty became a very, very, very good friend. He became a very good, very close friend. And uh, for many years, mm. and uh, he, he was very Martin Landau, terrific, great. You know his, you know, you know his buddy was James Dean. He would come into like the, he would take like home movies, and he would show us pictures of him and James Dean when they were in New York together. Um, he had great stories, uh, Mar and Marty could tell stories. Marty was one of the great storytellers, <laughs> and, and a great mimic. Marty could could do impersonations of everybody whether it was Gregory Peck and he would tell stories about Gregory Peck doing or Hitchcock or you know asking him about North by Northwest or Patty Chayefsky or Edward G. Robinson he did a play with uh great story or Steve McQueen yeah uh, talking about smoking weed with Steve McQueen and uh, during Nevada Smith I mean he was just great I mean he had done it all he had been part of the actor's studio and, and a big part of it and and I mean when I think mistress, it's everybody, but it's 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 Barry and it's Marty and every everybody else, but it's Barry and Marty. Because I work with Marty every day in the picture, pretty much. <laughs> I just I obviously feel I remember I, I got to to meet Marty once actually for his last film, and uh, everybody was saying, "Oh, ask him about James Dean, ask him about this." And I felt so bad. I'm like, I don't want I want to talk about the film that he's in. I only have you know ten minutes to talk to him, but I, I wish I could have gotten some of those stories. No, I asked him once because I've always thought that James Dean is an icon, no doubt. Hmm. But he made three movies. And I would argue one of them, uh, and it's funny because the performance he got nominated for, <laughs> is at least half of it is like, whoa, whoa. Um, I mean, when he's playing the old man at Giant, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> And I've always argued, or I've always probably, I go, you know, he made three movies. He was gone. I said, if bad hypothetical, and God forbid, then it didn't happen. Had John Travolta been in a fatal crash after Greece, he would have been James Dean. You know, he would have had two or three movies. He would have had Saturday Night Fever. He would have had Greece. And, you know, so I asked Marty, how good an actor was James Dean? 
And he paid him a very high compliment. He went, as, as he said, good actor, good actor. And that, and that is, when you hear all these critics and all these other shit, oh, amazing, hard. When actors talk about other actors, it's usually good actor. Huh. Good actor. You know, you don't, you don't get the hyperbole that you get from, this, you know, the critics and the public and all these, you know, fanboys. That, that, that doesn't really happen with, it's like ballplayers the same way. Good ball player, good player. Good player. Now you have a couple of people who are, you know, your Brandos and your Daniel Days and stuff like that, and your Meryl Streeps. But most of the time, good actor, good actor. You know, that's that's usually that's usually the praise. Yeah, and, and I guess for for Dean, it always, unfortunately, did come down to his looks. Because I mean, look, John Cassell, same thing. Only three movies. I mean, plenty of stage work. But yes, he's he's heralded by people who know who he is. But he doesn't get the praise that he probably deserves. Four movies. Four, four. Sorry, four. Sorry. <laughs> one more best picture. Nominee. I, I would, I, I would argue that Gazelle is a much better actor than James. Yeah. Dean. Well, exactly. Yeah, but he doesn't probably doesn't get the experience when, because of the looks. When, when James Dean, you also got you know, and it's and of course this is, this is you know, it's it's easy to look back from fifty years ago, but James Dean in in that whole fifties period, it seems to me everybody's doing Brando. Everybody's doing bad, Brandon. Watch Vic Morrow in the Blackboard Jungle. Oh, daddy, oh, daddy, oh. I mean, I mean, James Dean, I'm feeling a pup. They're all doing Brando. And Brando was the guy. And they're all doing him. Casal was Casal. I mean, he, those characters are very different. I mean, how much different is Jed Rink from, from uh, Rebel Without a Call? Now, how, I will say this, to be fair to James Dean. Uh, you know, in East of Eden, he's quite wonderful. He's really, I think he's quite wonderful in East of Eden. Um, when I saw that, I had not seen that. You know, I, I came to the party late on that. And mm. then when I saw it, I go, okay, now I get it. You know, in that movie, but I'm not, if, when my buddies and I talk about icons, and usually icons are over, most overrated icon, I'd say James Dean. And we, you know. Cue the internet flooding this episode's comments with all of the James Dean propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure it's one man's opinion that's all it is yeah and again he only made three movies so you know it's it's unfortunate and people like them apparently i mean i've never heard anybody say bad words against it well except for raymond massey and stuff but that was Elia kazan uh, pushing all the buttons um you know i mean because kazan would i mean dean would purposely you know go off into different directions but that's that's an actor's choice and that's a director's you know, he's got to allow that. So, and he did, and it worked. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's all, I guess, cult personality type things. I mean, it doesn't have to be person. You know, you look back at the whole thing with, you know, it's a wonderful life. It wasn't a hit when it came out. It just because lost its rights and got played everywhere that all of a sudden became something more important to people. And so it filled up the airwaves. But it holds up really well. That's yeah, we the, <laughs> the other part of it, it holds up really well. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, that was a... Yeah, that was a rights thing. And it was on every TV station every 10 times a day. But as you watched it, you realized how good a movie this is and how dark it is. Um, you know, Jimmy Stewart, I will always give him, he was not afraid to play dark. I mean, you look at some of these Western seasons, he's really dark. And 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 there's a guy killing himself and uh, he's dark and it's a wonderful life. And you no, know, Stewart was not, you know, he plays a murderer, a clown, but it's a murderer. Uh, in, in greatest show on earth, uh, I once asked him if he ever. Uh, the one time I met him, if he ever had to, did he have any kind of hesitation 
about playing a murderer. Now, in a great show on earth, first of all, he's in a clown makeup, so how serious are you taking him as a murderer? <laughs> and, and, he, and he's not really a murderer, he's a doctor who operated and the guy died. So, uh, but I mean, there's people who probably would not have done that, I, I think. I mean, I know actors who are very, you know, very image conscious and won't take certain parts. Very much so. I should also mention that, you know, Jimmy Stewart, as great as he was, did funnel names to J. Edgar Hoover on the blacklist. You know, you know that's, the other, that's the other side. You know, yeah, it's, it's like Hemingway. You got to separate the art from the artist. That's the real dark Jimmy. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, he obviously believed it. Remember, he was a brigadier general, I think, um, after the war. I mean, during the war, and he fought and uh, he felt this was his patriotic duty. This is when him and Fonda have a huge split, very, because they were lifelong friends. They were roommates in college, in New York and they were lifelong friends, but you know, Fonda was a Democrat, he was a Republican, but they split, uh, they did not talk for many years, the story goes, when Fonda found out that he was funneling names to the blacklist. Right. But I mean, you, you, again, you have to separate that stuff. You have to, do, you, you, you have to separate the personal from the professional, you have to. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, watch Jimmy Stewart in Anatomy of a Murder. You want to see a great performance. That's a pretty great movie. Uh, and by the way, the person is really great in that. I mean, besides everybody, but you realize how great Lee Remick is. Uh, yeah. I mean, who did I who did I talk about? I would think Annette Bening is like uh, this generation's sort. Not even not just generation, but an older generation's Lee Remick, because she's awfully good. Oh yeah. As was Lee Remick. Lee Remick was, you know, great. You know, I, I know we got a little far off, you know, in, in all that conversation, but you know, we do want to kind of do a little bit more talk about Mistress. Michael, you you said earlier you you read a little piece about something the producer suggested. Oh yeah, well, it's kind of tying back to uh, it was saying that uh, Robert De Niro's character and his whole opinion about the lack of sex in the script was apparently inspired by something that Barry had actually uh, gone through trying to sell Mistress. Probably true. I don't know the backstory, but it's probably true. No, right. I, I remember shooting that scene and that was a great day because you watched, it was, you know, here comes De Niro. I mean, it was like, we're getting to work with De Niro and Marty <laughs> and I, and, you know, it's a scene in the restaurant uh, and watching him work was something to this day I'll never forget. I mean, because he would, it's a luxury. Let me let me let me say that up front. It's a luxury to do this, but he would sort of rehearse on film. In other words, for when he gives the big speech, he would say like this. This is the way it would be. It would be like, I'll tell you what's wrong with your script. It's not enough sex. It needs more sex. I'll tell you what's wrong with your script. It's not enough sex. It needs more sex. You need to have more sex. Or I'll tell you what's wrong with your script. It needs more sex. There's not enough sex in it. You need more sex. He goes, and I don't mean this. I'll tell you what's wrong with your script. It needs more sex. You got a lot more sex. He goes, you have to have this thing with the person and, and you got these birds in there. Who? You know what's wrong with your script? Needs more sex. This, is what, this would go on for half an hour. So, and, and Marty would say, I'm shocked about it. But, let me tell you, if you can, if you have the luxury to do that, wow, can you come up with a cool, it was fun to watch. It was fun to watch it all come together. It really was. Was that, was that something you were prepared for? Like, did he say anything beforehand? Just all of a sudden we're rolling and that's what happened. We're rolling, that's it. 
Wow. Now, he, now, Barry knew how he worked. We just didn't. Okay. And it was his movie, you know. It was it was De Niro's company's movie. And plus, you wanted it. It was just fascinating to watch it do it. It was fun. It was fun. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, when I got to do other shows, when I got to do Artless, I did a little of that. If I, Not too much, but a little of it. <laughs> See, also, it's when you're doing monologues. Now, remember, no one in the history of film has given better monologues than Robert De Niro, ever. So these are all monologues. Remember, think Taxi Driver. You talking to me? Are you talking? Now you know he did, that. This is what he did. I mean, he did that for fifty. Think of King of Comedy when he's downstairs in the basement. He's talking and so I'm sure this went on forever. Raging Bull when he's in the when he's in the Raging Bull. You know, you know. This, no one has ever, ever, you know, they had given more monologues than Robert De Niro. You know, that's what he and Scorsese can do. So, uh, and, and when you have monologues like that, you can do that. It also helps that you're the producer and you can kick a couple grand in if you need more film. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, without a doubt, without a doubt, <laughs> uh, without a doubt. But, but you also know what you're getting into to begin with. And, and it was fascinating to watch him work. And by God, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. But again, it's a luxury. I mean, I guess De Niro is also the kind of person I, you know, obviously I would think as a producer, it really cares about the final product. He's not there just to make money or churn something out. He wants to make it made. He wants to get it made. Oh, yeah. Well, he wants it to be good. I mean, you know, he, he, you know, he's one of the great guys. I mean, he's one of the greats. I mean, I'm very, very fortunate to have had that opportunity. Uh, he's a terrific person and, and a great artist and a great artist. Did, when it came to getting over everything, looking over everything on the script, when they had that line, where you say something about like, oh, we're not making Batman 3. Did you think they were doing that because of you being in the film? I don't think so. I don't think so. No. No, I don't. I really don't think so. I think it was just because Batman had been such a big hit. Huh. And, uh, you know, it was the, you know, it was just, it was just, today would probably be Lord of the Rings or, you know, or, you yeah. know, or Iron Man 2 or, you know, you throw something on Avengers, you know, it, it was, it would, I just think that was it. But Batman meant, yeah, I happen to be in it, but I mean, but, Batman just meant a type of movie, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It was like a re-evolution of the summer blockbuster where, like, it was just this monolithic thing and all they needed was that symbol and that sold a whole film. Well, I'll tell you, when that symbol first came out, people, we know it now, but I remember when the billboard first came up over here on the Wilshire Boulevard and people, we know it now, but when people had never seen it before, they didn't know what it meant. It would look, first of all, you, they weren't know, am I looking at the black or am I looking at the gold? It wasn't, we know it now. And so it's, it's become part, back then people didn't and they had a lot of trouble with it. And there was a lot of people who said, well, it's not clear. What is it? And then they finally, oh, sure. Now I get it, you know, then it became, but not then, that was a ballsy choice. I mean, that was a, I mean, I remember all that. I remember the whole Batman thing. That was different experience, pretty amazing too. Totally different. Um, what I've always contended, though, is um, in the first incarnation of Batman, I'm mean, not the Dark Knight series, the first series, uh, starting with Batman and going through Batman and Robin. I have always contended that if you put all those films together end to end, every hour gets progressively worse. It makes sense. Until the last movie is unwatchable. Yeah, that, that last film is very, very high on the, the camp factor. Well, and then you go back to that first Burton movie and it's just that wonderful crossroads between like this 
noir like I, I i'm sorry we're we're off topic on mistress and i'm sure you know no. so many people are, are going on to you and it's like oh oh bobby batman like yeah, oh batman but Great. seriously your character in batman is one of my favorites because it's just this old school paper guy like going and doing hard-hitting journalism in the middle of all this like mayhem and just you were so cut out for that like right down to just the outfits and everything and um, I'm kind of sad that we never got to see Alexander Knox again in any of the other films because I, I'm assuming he does get that grant. You and me both are sorry we didn't see him. Uh, the, uh, I mean, in fact, I was supposed to die in the original. In the original script, he died at the end, Alexander Knox. Oh. And and and, and so we're keeping him alive. And I went, oh, thank you. Because <laughs> I figured Batman 2, the annuity, but it, but it, it wasn't to be. Uh, but... When I talk about Barry Primus with Mistress, it's Tim Burton when it's Batman. It's all Tim Burton. It's all. Now, it's, this is not to say that Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton didn't make a huge, huge, huge contribution. And, and to a lesser extent, John Peters and Goober, but it's Tim Burton. I mean, it's to give you an idea of Tim Burton, I mean, where they were thinking of going with. See, now I was not a fan of the TV series. It was much too campy for me. I didn't like it at all. And when I read the original script, the Sam Ham script, I said, this is going to work because of Tim Burton. And Tim Burton had only done two movies at this point. He had just done, uh, he had done Pee Wee and Frankenweenie, I think, or something like that. And Beetlejuice uh, by then, right? Beetlejuice, that's right. He did, he yeah. done, Beetlejuice and uh, Pee Wee. And I'm sure some people were still thinking this Disney kid thinks he can make yeah. a Batman movie. Yeah, and you could tell by Beetlejuice where he was going to go with this thing. I could. Now, because to give you an idea where the producers thought they were going to go, I once asked, how'd you not cast Michael Keaton? Who were you going to cast? And they were thinking, I mean, you, you know who they were thinking? Pierce I, I know there was, there was, there was, Bill Murray was one of them. Pierce Brosnan was one. No, they never thought of Pierce Brosnan. Well, I thought I heard that. Bill no. Murray, they were thinking, Chevy Chase, they were thinking. Uh, they were going, they were thinking campy, believe me. Yeah. They were thinking, and, and, and by the way, when Tim leaves, it becomes more campy. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were not thinking like Tim. You know, Tim had a fight every, you, you don't think Tim wanted the Prince songs in there. That wasn't his idea. You know, that, that was forced upon him. Turned out it worked, but it was shoehorned in. I mean, Tim, you know, uh, that was shoehorned in to Tim. But, but you got to keep in mind, this was the most expensive movie of all time up to this point. And it was a Warner Brothers picture. And Warner Brothers had just had an enormous hit with Purple Rain. And Prince is at the height. And they had Prince's contract. So they would have put Prince songs into this movie. So, again, it's Tim. It's all, I mean, uh, and, and Tim's sensibilities because he hires Anton first to do the production design. And Anton first was a very tortured genius who wound up committing suicide shortly thereafter. But I mean, the first time you walk on the set of Pinewood and saw Gotham City, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that was, that was special. Turning back to Mistress though, uh, what's really funny is when Matthew and I started this podcast, uh, not too, too long ago, but we sort of looked over our lists of movies we wanted to cover. 
And I was just, we were just amazed by the fact that we picked so many movies that are like Mistress and, you know, the players on there too, and uh, Mammoth State in Maine, where it's just this beautiful little cottage industry of movies that talk about the meat grinder of Hollywood. Yeah, and, the, the big picture by Christopher Guest as well. That too. And I'm, I don't know about anyone else in here, but I'm really bummed that we don't get too many movies like that anymore. Uh, do you think it's because they won't allow it, or do you think do you think it's just because no one really finds? Oh, I, I would. I mean, first of all, everybody. It seems to me every sitcom takes place. Somebody's a writer or a comedian or an actor. So, um, no, Hollywood generally likes movies about themselves. You're dealing with a, 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 a industry of egomaniacs. Uh, they generally like seeing their their stories told. Um, and I would argue uh, uh, the two best movies ever about Hollywood. I mean, if you had to pick the two favorite, the two, well, of course, it's all favorite and personal taste. Two best movies ever about Hollywood, history of movies. What would you say? Oh, again, yeah. everything's generational. I have to say it, so I'm older, but again. Yeah. <laughs> State and Maine's one of mine, because I just love the whole back and forth they go with uh, mm -hmm. William H. Macy and Philip Seymour Hoffman sort of at the core of that, and then everyone else that it sort of blooms into. Uh, I'm trying to think of another one. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far off the, the the course of what we're talking about being film and or TV. And it's, it's probably not where anybody else would be thinking, but I'd go with a face in the crowd. Pretty great. Well, I didn't think Hollywood there. That's more TV, but I, yeah. yeah. A face in the crowd's definitely, definitely in, in the conversation. But I would say the two best movies ever about Hollywood, at least up to the latter part of the 20th century, I would say are Sunset Boulevard and Singing in the Rain. Hmm. Singing in the Rain, you know, is about Hollywood of a different, of a, at a different point, but it's perfection. I mean, Singing in the Rain is pure perfection to me. Uh, and Hollywood Boulevard, I mean, is I mean, Sunset Boulevard. I mean, how Hollywood is that? I mean, with older stars and trying to hang on and screenwriters and sell their soul. And uh, even, it even has Cecil B. DeMille uh, and it's Billy Robin. The uh, those those would be, but your your choices are terrific, both of them. I mean, those those two. Um, I would throw another one in there, Wag the Dog. Also yeah. on our list to talk about. <laughs> Wag the Dog. Oh. You know, because now it's politics and Hollywood, but yeah. Um, but then, just like just like you were saying, how Mistress kind of got beat out by the player, and so maybe it didn't get as much attention. Is that also the case? Then that possibly. Yeah, Hollywood loves movies about itself. Maybe it doesn't resonate with the public as much. Possible. Yeah, probably. They, they don't give a shit as much, which is, uh -huh. you know, uh, critics do. Critics love that thing because um, they, they're so hip. The, um, I, uh, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of other movies about Hollywood that, uh, uh, you know, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's always, it's always tough when you're, when you're trying to think of something, even though you yeah, know no, a whole backlog, you can't come up with anything. Well, Mistress is wonderful because it's about the underbelly. Yeah. Mistress is about the underbelly. It's, about, it's not about stars and it's not about, you know, somebody's having an affair with this one. Is that an affair? It's, this is about the grit. These are about, basically about losers. Mistress is about losers. And even at the very end of the movie, the great tag at the end, uh, when he gives him the speech about, I'm full, I listen. I don't have to be a director. It's okay. And he says, but I want to talk to you. And he goes, what time? You know, uh, I, I mean, I mean, it is about losers. And, uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, not, the public doesn't like movies about losers. Mm. 
movie going public doesn't want to see movies about losers for the most part. You know, they, they, they just don't, you know, unless they're a serial killer, then they give them Oscars. <laughs> and then, uh, especially if you don't know whether the loser is, is going to win or not at the end, because that is a very, it's a semi-ambiguous ending. And that's what I love about it. It's like, okay, you really want to know how much longer he's going to do this. But it really does hit just ending on that last glimmer of hope where it's like, like you said, what time are we meeting? Oh, I'll show you something that you get a kick out of. I won't show you. I can't. I shouldn't. <laughs> Believe it or not, this. Can you read it? Oh, yeah. Oh, Oscar ballot. Now, here's something that's really interesting. And uh, I am a, I'm a big believer in the Oscars. <laughs> you know, uh, I love the Academy. I'm a proud member of the Academy. I like their, they do a lot of great work besides the awards. And I've written the Academy Awards twice, three times. Um, but something that they did, you know, you're talking about, when you talk PC, they have an Oscar, you know, in the dictionary. And uh, they decided to do something about, I don't know how many years ago, five, six, seven years ago, when they went to a ranked ballot, uh, which is interesting. You know, for example, but I'll show you something, first of all, that you may, I, I don't want you to see my, my choices here. That's not, not that I care, but- well, if it gets on there, we won't show anybody for yeah, sure. But, yeah. But they frown on. Here's when you say, "How did Martin Scorsese look lose all those years, or Randy Newman lose all these years?" Here is why, because on the ballot, as you see, if it says costume design, directing, right, you do not see the actual artist's names. You only see the name of the picture. The only time you see names is as the with the with the actors. That's the only time you see names. You know, if it says screenplay, or whatever. It just gives you the picture. It does not give names. Uh, and I guess the thought behind that is you should judge it on the merits of the film, not on who you know, which is total bullshit. Um, but the only time that you see anybody's name on a ballot is, is with the actors. Hmm. Now, interestingly, they went to this weighted ballot with uh, the best pictures, one through nine. You have to rank them, if you can believe it or not, uh, which is which I really think is a very a terrible way to do this thing. Well, put it this way, do you want a consensus winner? Well, you see what happens is politics gets really big in this. For example, if you really hate a movie, and believe me, a lot of people hate movies, they can rank the dead last. So as they count the votes, nine or nine or 10 gets, which is why, and there's no doubt in my mind, this is what happened, which is why La La Land, and uh, uh, what was these? The, Moonlight. Uh, no, well, Moonlight. But what was these, the the Mexican film that? Oh, uh, 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 oh. <laughs> Roma, 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 Roma. Why they lost Best Picture? Not a doubt in my mind because they won every other award. They won actor, screenwriter, director, so and so. But they're not ranked ballots. So the people who hated L.A. La La Land and Roma, and there were a lot of them, just voted them last. Mm. You, so you got a green book winning because it was like second or third choice on most people's ballots, you know, and you got uh, uh, Moonlight, you know, because it was second or third. But there is not a doubt in my mind they didn't get the most first place votes, but they probably got a ton of last place votes. And that that's that's what happens. Um, does it feel like things are changing? I mean, after Parasite winning, does it feel like there's a change? No, no, it's going to get worse. Mm. It's going to get worse. You're going to get, you know, now, now you, with the, you know, with the ex inclusivity rules and all that, it's going to get much worse. 
No, oh no, 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 wow. no, not at all. Uh, the only thing that you can be sure of with this year's Oscars is that it'll be the lowest rated Oscar ceremony in TV by a lot. Uh. I, mean, I think last year was the lowest. I expect this one to be from the lowest now, 35 to 50% lower than that. I mean, it's, nobody's gonna watch, nobody. Nobody's seen the movies. If you're not in New York or LA or in a business, nobody has seen these movies. I don't know if you watch Bill Maher, but he gave a great rant about this two weeks ago, about uh, these movies are like, this is, these are the Sundance Oscars, I call them. These are all films that the people at Sundance would rave about, but no one ever goes to see. And, there, and because they didn't have to play in the theaters and they would all bombed out in the theaters, every one of these movies, but they played it on Netflix so people can watch it. The critics at home can go, oh, brilliant. The same Sundance people, oh, brilliant. But they got all the hype. Um, you know, not one of these movies would have made a dime in a box office. Not, you think Nomadland's gonna make box office money? Not a chance, not a chance. Uh, uh, these movies would not have done any business What's I'm trying to think of any of them. I, I, Promising Young Woman might've been the, the one that made the most. Which one? Promising Young Woman, I think, would have been out of the crop. That might yeah, have been yeah, I, yeah, perhaps, yeah, I might, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. by this time in the regular cycle, or by uh, in the, we would see yeah, sort of a of the wheat from the chaff and more popular movies right. thrown in there. Which begs another question. At what point, and this is, this is a tough one because it's a conundrum about art. Art aside, which is a conundrum. <laughs> at, what point, at what point do we stop rewarding and awarding serial killers, psychotics. I mean, I mean, between, between Joker, Monster, No Country for Old Men, Promising Young Woman, I mean, all these people, it's like, you know, and oh, great performance, great performance. It's like, really? I mean, you know how easy it is to play a monster? You know, it's like, you know, these are all great actors, every one of them, and they were good performers. But at what point do we stop celebrating this stuff. Uh, At I, least with I, Promising a Woman, there was a, an extra layer in there where she was kind of, there was something extra there than just, I had a bad day. I'm now the Joker. Again, that's degrees. That's the, yeah. that's degrees, uh, you know, or, or even, or even, or even um, a parasite. We celebrate a, a serial killer, a killer a murder at the end. I mean, I always, it always amazed me how people, I say, you know, this guy is a murderer. And he's walking out and everybody's happy. I go, he is a murderer, a cold-blooded murderer. I mean, he sees the guy because he didn't like the way, the, the guy didn't like the way he smelled, so he murdered him. And it's like, you know, come on. And I like that movie. And they just you know, sort of those biases that people seem to think the Academy has against, you know, comedy or, or something. Oh, wow. Don't get me started with that. <laughs> no, don't go with comedy. I once- so we I, got another hour, right? <laughs> I once asked, I once tried to get support for a comedy category. And because, I mean, they give animated films, they give documentaries, they give short subjects, short subjects, shorter subjects, uh, live, and I go, but not comedy? And the reason, and I, this was talking with this with uh, the great Ted, late Ted Sherrick, Tom Sherrick, who was the president of the Academy, former head of distribution uh, for many years at 20th Century Fox, truly one of the industry's great people. And he's, and I said, why don't they go with the, I mean, would you be in favor of a comedy category? He goes, 100%. He says, first of all, from a business point of view, 
Do you know how great that is for distribution and marketing to be able to put best comedy on a, on a you know, nominated on a, it, it's more, it's good for the business. And he says, and I said, but it's not going to happen. He goes, not a chance. And we both <laughs> knew why. And the reason is, for this reason, because the Golden Globes do it. And the Academy, as elitist mm. as, you know, as elitist as the Academy is, and I'm a member, a proud member, they will never do anything the Golden Globes thought of first. Oh. They just won't do it. You know, you know, a bad idea, can, a good idea can come from anywhere, you know, but they won't do that. And that's stupid. It's selfish and it's stupid. And I had such people as uh, uh, Ron Howard was in favor of this. Harvey Weinstein was in favor of this. Uh, a lot, you know, people in comedy. It, it's absurd. It's absurd. You because comedy is never ever recognized. Not because it's just a bias that it just is. However, when you see the ten best lists of every critic every year, how many comedies are ever on it? One, mm-hmm. maybe two, maybe I know. Then ask them their 10 worst list. They got five comedies because they know comedy. You know, so don't, don't get me going on that one there. Anyway. That's it. All right. So we basically just broke out. We, we now have a legacy equal pitch for Mistress 2 award season. <laughs> or, or I don't know. We got we got to we got to focus test the the, the subtitle because, you know, or, or maybe we'll just call it Mistress. Because it's Where like, are you guys from? Where are you? Going? What's your background? Uh, from Jersey. Uh hey, uh born in let's see born in wayne raised in central and currently next to princeton okay i, I was born in newark and grew up in union the uh, uh and, 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 and how about your own show oh i i was uh, born in long island massapequa uh stayed there most of my life i'm in forest hills now i'm in queens i wanted to be a filmmaker a long time ago life got in the way here i am okay great well, it's great you love the movies. I hope you watch old movies. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, obviously you guys do. It's hard to get my, like my, it's hard to get a younger generation to watch anything in black and white. It's just so hard. I mean, I, but like I had a class where I was teaching some film and I showed them His Girl Friday and they love that. They just, the fact that they talk so damn fast. Um, but <laughs> trying to get them to watch black and white films is really tough. It's really, it's a shame. It's just a shame. Go to the museum and look at a black and white picture, I mean, a photograph or something. Well, it gets confusing too when, it, when you know, there are hints made in, in other mediums about some old films. Like everybody was talking about, you know, Mandalorian. They made this whole se- section. Everybody was saying it's the Sorcerer section. I'm like, yeah, but Sorcerer was Wages of Fear. Go watch Wages of Fear instead. You know, they're both great films, but that's the one you watch. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. The, um... You know, it's like to get the people to watch. Oh, wow, it's really hard. I mean, uh, it, it, just to watch old film. It's just like Dan Luria, my dear friend. You, I know you know Dan. He was the father on the Wonder Years. Yep. And, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's in Lombardi on Broadway. He's a great, great actor. And he is the big. He must own a thousand reels of film, and he oh. shows and he shows them in his house to people. And like every day, he would show. Um, Oh, what's the name of the uh, Fred Savage when he was on doing the Wonder Years? He would show him movies, old movies, because Fred says, well, I want to be a director. He goes, Well, you're going to watch every film with me then. And we talk about watching, like when Cape Fear came out, he goes, Watch the original Cape Fear. He goes, Watch the original. Watch how scary Robert Mitchum is in Cape Fear or, or Night of the Hunter. Um, that's that's know, what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the uh, it's interesting. Like, I, when I was hosting, when I got, got the guest host, uh, Turner Classic Movies, 
and uh, with Osborne, who was great. Osborne was great. Ah. You miss Osborne, I'll tell you. Uh, his love and, and the fan, it was just great. And I got to pick three movies. And, and I didn't want to pick any, you know, I didn't want to take Casablanca or I could have, but I mean, I'm not going to take, you know, Chinatown. I mean, I could have, you know, really confidential. I mean, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to go Serpico or somewhere network, which I watched last night again. Um, which we're going to talk about soon as well. <laughs> well network, network is, uh, you know, it's, it's as good as it gets. I don't know if you saw the, the, the Broadway version, but. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, I missed it. No, okay. no, fortunately you missed it. Okay. Good, and my and my close friend was a star. <laughs> the uh, I, you know I didn't tell him that, but but <laughs> did you like the Broadway version, Mike? I liked it, but I I will say that I com- I with things like that, I will never have something like the newer, different version supplant the original because I first saw Network, and it struck accord with me and it's still one of my favorites where I could leave it's like Martin Scorsese's Casino I can leave it on in the background and I'll listen to it and I'll know the rhythms and I'll know okay I want to look up for this part and I'll let this part go by and I absolutely love that film what really interested me with the play was the maddest hell scene because in the film I felt like the way it played out was it was very much sort of a bullion, like an energetic sort of charged moment. And it's very much the call to action. But then watching the network stage play, it was no longer this prescient vision. It was a tragedy. And then watching Brian Cranston act that whole thing, like from the moment he throws open those doors in the back of the house and that scared the hell out of us. And then he comes down and starts through that whole speech it's not a call to action. It's like a desperate plea for sanity. And I really liked, I really liked the interpretation of the play. And I'll never say that it beats the original, but I thought it was a very novel sort of way forward with, okay, we're going to put network on stage. You can only do it so many ways. And I thought it were interesting choices. Okay. Okay, I was I, I'm, I'm I'm not in the same camp on this one. Uh, first of all, you do know Network is a comedy. <laughs> it is a black comedy. Oh yeah. Well, you wouldn't know it from that performance because this guy wouldn't. This director wouldn't know a joke if it hit him in the fucking face. That's fair. I mean, that is very yeah. fair. Wait, wait. I'll tell you. This is a story. Okay, I auditioned for this. One. Tell us all the stories. I auditioned for Network because of Brian. Brian got me an audition. So I met with Evo, Ivo, whatever his name is, Evo Von, whatever his name is. And we met, it was nice. I had a great time. He was very fortunate. I, you know, I wasn't right for the parts that he wanted me to look at me before. And on the way out, I noticed in the script, and it was, it was the London script that they were playing off of at the time, they were updating it. They, if you notice in the play, they changed, uh, you know Network very well, obviously. And they changed the whole riff with the, from Sybil the Soothsayer, Vox Populi, yeah. and they and they used to have It's the Emma's Truth. Mm-hmm. And they changed it to It's the Damn Truth. Yeah. And I said to Ivo, I go, Ivo, I, this is just suggestion. You can take it, throw it away. Now in London, I really didn't believe this, but in London, you want to change it to It's the Damn Truth. Okay. But I guarantee you, 
in New York, if you say it's the Emmis truth, it's going to get a laugh. He looked at me like I had two fucking heads. <laughs> Jason Zinneman, the critic from the New York Times, who writes the comedy column in theater, he wrote, I don't think this guy know, has a funny sense of humor bone in his body. And I agree. I agree. I mean, network is funny, especially the first half. It's, I mean, it's funny. Uh, and it's satire. Network is satire. There wasn't a satirical thing in it. It was so fucking heavy handed. That whole thing at the end, when they went through the different presidents and they had their inaugurations and network is not about party politics. Mm -mm. It's, it's, not, it's about corporations. It's about capitalism. It's about, you know, that, but it's not about Republican Democrat. It's not about that. It's about a bigger picture than that. It's about, there is no AT&T, yep. there, you know, there is no America, there is no Russia, there's only IT&T and Dow and Union Carbide. It's not about Republicans and Democrats, and he made it that way. Corporate and, cosmology. Right, and he and he and he took everything out of that, but, you know, Brian's one of my two or three best friends, so I ain't telling him. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys will have to fill me in, because I didn't, I, since I didn't see it, you know, talking about going back to black comedy and network, you know, that's to me the greatest ending line of an entire movie. This has been yeah, the story of Howard Beale, a man who got killed over bad ratings. Was over that even in the play? Ratings. Over lousy ratings. Lousy, yeah. Yeah. Is it in the play? I don't even remember. Because they had that false ending. They had that false ending where they did that magic trick on stage, which was cool. Uh, yeah. The magic trick. And then they went into this montage as, as everybody wrote about what a cheap shot this was in that column. Uh, of all the New York Times theater critics talking about a cheap shot. They went into a montage of every president taking the oath of office from, I think it started with Eisenhower, was it Roosevelt or Eisenhower? No, it was, it was Eisenhower, I think. Mm -hmm. They went from Eisenhower to Kennedy, you know, down the line, you know. And then, of course, when it got to, oh, and by the way, old man Bush had just died. about yeah. He had died within a week before I saw it. So when it came to Bush, I mean, they were, you know, there was actually applauding in the uh, in the theater, which they never would have done had he not died. Oh. And of course, when it got to Obama, there was huge cheers. And of course, Trump, it was boo, boo. So it was like he made it about something that it's not about. It's a choice he made. It's a directorial interpretation. I get it, but I hate it. Yeah, I mean, there are choices to be made, but network is very specifically trying to tell one specific thing. And even if you move it over into something else, this is not going to work. Well, again, it's a choice. It's a yeah. choice. And, and, yeah. like, and I'm happy for Brian. Brian was good. Brian was fast. Like you said, Brian was the, Brian was the whole show. The um, I wish they released a recording because I really want to go back and look at it and say, okay, how much of me loving this is because of Brian's performance mostly. versus... Do you remember okay. how, how bad was the delivery of the Ned Beatty speech? When the guy oh, no, they ruined it? All right. All right. That is something that I did have a problem with because he's just standing there and he's very much it's this and this but then yeah. you think of that movie and ned Beatty just comes in and rips the balls off of everything great story with ned Beatty. you know he was a day player he only had one day of work yeah and he gets an academy award nomination and beecher straight i think works three days and she wins the oscar well was yeah. it all it was only like minutes of screen time yeah but isn't it also that ned Beatty was called into last minute to replace somebody who, who couldn't do it yeah yeah they fired the first actor yeah yeah yeah. That's one of the greatest, that's the greatest cameo like in, in the history of film almost. It's a pretty great one. I mean, uh, and the shot, the way they shot that was great. You know, Sidney Lumet isn't generally known 
for visual style. That's not his strength. He's never been, you know. But when you think about that scene in Valhalla, which was actually the New York Public Library, yeah, the with the lights and the, that's a pretty brilliantly shot scene, you know. Uh, that's a that, that I watched it last night. It was on Turner Classic. The movies I did for Turner Classic, you probably don't even know. But I, I did three pretty obscure movies. One is the original 1941 Ernst Lubitsch To Be or Not To Be, with Jack, oh. Jack Benny and Carol Lombard, which is my favorite movie of all time. Incredibly, you're talking about satire. Well, with the Nazis. When, unfortunately, it came out, uh, they shot it in 40 or 41, and it came out a month after Pearl Harbor and like a month after Carol Lumberg died in a plane crash. Oh. Not very timely, but boy, it's brilliant. It's just the most brilliant movie. Uh, that one, uh, I like Westerns. I'm a big Western fan. So one of my favorites is The Big Country with, uh, yeah. with Charlton Heston and Gregory, Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck. Martin Landau <laughs> <laughs> Martin with Gregory Peck. Miller, did you know? Um, uh, and uh, it was that's a great that's a great West. Burl Ives won the Oscar for the Western that year. Uh, and the other one was a movie. Now, this might fall to you guys. Did you ever see a movie called Smile? No, I can't say I have. Oh, Smile! Smile is about 1973. It's about beauty pageants. It's a satire about beauty pageants. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Michael Ritchie, who did The Bad News Bears and The Candidate, he followed both those up with a movie called Smile, which is about, which like all Michael Ritchie films that were really good, it's about Americana values. You know, in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, there were three or four directors holding a mirror up to America. It was uh, Altman, uh -huh. it was Hal Ashby, and pretty much Michael Ritchie when he did Downhill Racer and The Candidate and The Bad News Bears. And Smile is about beauty pageants and their effect on America and small town America. And it's big time smart and funny. It's got a lot of pop culture in it of the time too. Uh, that, so it was those three movies because I wanted something different. I just didn't want to do Casablanca, you know, Gone yeah. with Wind, you know, which I hate. That's what movie that's so, I'll, I'll let you go after this one. I'm on this show much too long. The, um, <laughs> nah, no what, such thing. What movie that is generally acclaimed as a classic great movie do you not like it all? Oh, there's so many of them. And now I have to think of it. I'm probably not going to be able to. Mike, go ahead while I think. I, I'm well, first throwing off, a blank too. Well, first off, that with me is Gone with the Wind. I hate Gone with the Wind. Nothing I like about it. What cause are they fighting for? The cause. What cause? Slavery? <laughs> what cause are you fighting for? And she's a bitch. She's a total bitch. I mean, she's gonna match. She, she wants to marry her. She she loves her her sister's husband, and she's pissed off. And she so she jerks this other guy around for three hours. It's like, oh, ugh. I mean, I Scarlett O'Hara can go fuck herself. I mean, so I I you know, I just can't stand God with the wind. The cause, the great cause. You know, I'm sorry. That's that's one right there. I mean, I can only, I can only ever think of, of of more modern stuff when when I have to come off the straight off the top of my head. It's like you know, like I never understood. Look, I tell people this all the time. I kind of watch the Harry Potter movies like whenever they're on, only so I can argue against them with other people who love it. 
Well, okay. Well, I'm not a sci-fi or fantasy fan, with rare exceptions. It's always funny when I talk about Batman because I'm not a sci-fi fan. <laughs> or a fantasy with rare exceptions. Oh, I'll tell you the other one. Without you mentioned sci-fi. To me, 2001 is as dull as hell. Okay, I can go in on that because I remember watching that in high school. And even then, like, I... I swear one of the best things that any budding cinephile can do, and all of us kind of have attested to this, just go to a library and just browse the movie section, pick up whatever you want. And it wasn't a Kubrick thing because I remember picking up Dr. Strangelove around the same time and digging into it. The first time I saw Major Kong's drop, my best friend and I rewound at least five times because we had to watch it again. 2001 is just... Even as a sci-fi kid, it was a slog. I, I think it's incredibly dull. I know people, I, I respect it. Uh, you have to respect it. But I find it duller than dirt. I mean, so two and a half hours of watching Keir Dulé? Really? Uh, you know, <laughs> and a machine? I, uh, I, and, uh, and it was funny. I once had this discussion about Kubrick with uh, Gene Siskel. Uh, it was at an Oscar party in the early 90s. And we were talking about directors and we were talking about who do you think is the best director, by the way. And I, he, he mentioned Kubrick and I go, okay, now which Kubrick are you talking about here? Uh. I said, are you gonna talk about Kubrick the first half of his career or the latter part of his career? Because in the first part of the year when he's doing the killing, Paths of Glory, Paths strange, of glory love, strange, strange Love, Lolita, Clockwork, I'm with you. I am totally with you. But if you're talking about the last 30 years when he made three movies or four movies, when you're talking about Barry Lyndon, beautiful, but dull, uh, really, that's another, you know, uh, beautiful, uh, The Shining, which is beautiful, but I don't, I'm not a Shining fan. Uh, Full Metal Jacket is half of a good movie. The first half's very good. The second half is an episode of Combat. My father always said that he loved that first half because it reminded him. And then when it got to the rest, he's like, fuck it. Yeah, yeah. And and the last one, I still haven't figured out what the fuck it's about. Uh, <laughs> I wide shut. I mean, people try to explain to me, and I go, oh, give me a fucking break. It's uh, about Fidelio. Uh, it's, it's about two, three hours of my life I'm not getting back. The, uh, <laughs> but I said, so which Kubrick are we talking about here? You know, I said, the first half, I'm with you. I'll, I'll, I'll stand by those movies the rest of my life. I mean, but the second half, no. And he only made a movie every like nine, 10 years. Or yeah. So, you know, so, but uh, those, those are the ones. That we, no, nothing coming up from you, Michael? Oh, no, I was agreeing with 2001. Like, uh, I'm not, th- I can't think of anything, but just 2001, I remember like landing with a dull thud. I, I, and it's like, what? okay, we're, we're how long? And we're still, we're still on the monkeys. Okay, the monkeys mean something. Okay, come on, man. Anyway, classic. I hope I gave you what you needed today. I hope I helped. Oh no! It's thank you so much for joining us. You gave us more than more than necessary. But I do have to say, you somehow have to get us more assuming the position because that's the greatest stuff. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I was supposed to do more, and then uh, there was a changeover at HBO, and then yeah. didn't, didn't want any. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, we're ready to go with another one. We actually, I was going to do another one with. Um, uh, Glenn Fry was a very good friend from the Eagles. Uh, he was going to be part of it because he was going to do a, a, a class on music appreciation. And, um, and we had this all ready to go. And then, uh, then the money pulled out. And then Glenn and I started working on a musical version of Hotel California. And then unfortunately, he got sick and passed. 
uh, and the rest of the Eagles had no desire to do it. So anyway, but I miss Glenn. I, I miss I miss my buddy. I miss my buddy. Wow. You know, so uh, funny guy. Boy, was he funny. We laughed together. You know, when you have a friend that you laugh, I mean, where tears come down. And, yeah. you know, those friends are few and few and far between. And I miss that one. One of the part, sad things about getting older is you start to lose them. Anyway, listen, guys, all the best to you. And uh, thank you for enjoying Mistress and, and speaking the gospel. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> thank, you so, thank you so much for joining us, um, Robert Wool, Mr. Wool, if you may. Uh, fantastic. Batman. You know, man's full of stories. Yeah, the, uh, just the stories and also the, 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 the wealth of film knowledge that that man has. And I, I kind of want to steal the, the old Turner classic, like three movies approach from him now, because that felt like a really good question to go with. It was just like, what three movies would you put up on Turner Classic? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something, you know, it's funny, you know, and this happens everything. No matter how much knowledge I may or may not have, anytime anybody puts me on the spot to think of anything, I can't think of one thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I go back and just like scroll through my life. It's like, what? Because I've seen way too much stuff. And uh, when, when, it's, when it's not just anybody, when it's Robert Wool asking you, though, I, oh, yeah. I, I, I draw a blank. I draw a blank. <laughs> I mean, you know, not only his work in Batman, but like if you're you're cinephiles like us or even just kids or I feel like the both of us are very much kids who were 30 by the time they were 10. Like some of the material that he was in, like Arliss, like I knew what Arliss was as a kid. Well, maybe- Arliss, Arliss was that's his baby, though. I mean, like that's always yeah. been his thing. So that that's his. And just I liked seeing him in in movies when I was a kid because, you know, partially recognize him from Batman, but also just i like the cut of his jib and still to this day that is the robert wool you got back in the 80s and 90s is the robert wool you get today yeah i mean it, it, exactly uh you know he's everything that you kind of expect uh, in, in all the best ways and uh it's just great to have him on thank you again for joining us robert yeah and uh i have to say you were you were a mistress veteran but coming in for the first time i really like this movie I was taken aback by just that sort of, it was sort of a subtly, it's subtly dark. It's not pitch dark, but it, it no, is definitely. But it's, it's got some heft to it. It's got some heft. Oh yeah. I mean, we were talking about, you know, the, the various mistresses in the film and everyone like Tuesday night, Gene Smart and Shirley Ralph were fantastic in this. Shirley Ralph was the one that really hit me because she's the one that plays the game, knows what she's getting. And the biggest disappointment to her is when the role turns out she's she convinces herself and in the end con- convinces Robert Wool that the role is fa- the role the play is the thing basically and then when those rewrites gut that character her true disappointment that's like probably the, that's the one of the greatest disappointments. Well, I I, I I'll I, I mean I agree with what you're saying, but. I, Gene Smart's the killer for me, I think. Well, yeah. Like, well, when, now that I'm really thinking about it, it's like everybody's disappointment. Well, except for t- Tuesday Night's disappointment is a little more. But I'm, I'm just talking about performance-wise, though. I mean, I just mean that that, oh, yeah, that well, scene, okay. that's her audition scene is like, it's like I almost forgot about it. When I saw it again, I'm like, oh, my God, this is too good. Because like, she's somebody uh. you've seen in so much stuff, and she does great work, but, like, nobody appreciates her for how amazing she is and stuff like that yeah, and uh, right. needs more yeah. needs a little more uh needs a little more light shown on it 
And then that whole scene where it's her and Robert Wool at the poolside and she's asking him like, please tell, is, is he having an affair? Yeah, and just, yeah. Even with that, like weaker version of this movie, it's like, oh, well, I don't know her. Oh yeah, he is. And then it's the subtle weeping. But the way that he just equivocates and then she just launches, in, launches into, oh my God, like you get a little bit of a laugh, but also your heart breaks. Yeah, it does. And but you know what? I think I think that's enough of us talking about it though, because everybody should now see it if you haven't seen it again, because it's a movie that needs to be seen. So that's our overdue rental for today. And thank you for joining us. Make sure we're available on now uh, Spotify, Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Amazon. Depending on where you're listening to us, if you if you listen to your podcast or one of those services, make sure to go look for us. Like, subscribe, follow. Leave us reviews. Please, we don't know how to get better. Uh, well, if we need to get, we don't know if we need to get better unless you tell us. Uh, now, Matthew, please lead me through the maze of socials again. I, I swear, I will, I will memorize it one day uh, when this gag stops being funny. Facebook.com slash overdue rentals. Twitter.com slash rentals overdue. Instagram.com slash over rentals show. YouTube.com slash overdue rentals. And that's that's everything, right? I didn't miss any of the uh, social media, you did missed, I? You missed Grubhub. Well, I'm going to eat now. Perfect. Very fair. Um, one last thing before we do go, though. Uh, Matthew, where do we find you on social media? You'll most find me most of the time on Instagram slash shallots stash. Very great. And you can find me, Mike Reyes, on all three major networks at Mr. Controversy 83. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for revisiting our little rental shop that we call Overdue Rentals, and we will see you next time. And scratch mistress off your Overdue Rentals list. <laughs>